welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life, all from a confessionally Reformed Baptist perspective. Uh, my name is Joe Anity. I serve as pastor at Emmaus Christian Fellowship Church in Hemet, California, and I'm joined again today by Mark Hogan. Mark, uh, thanks for uh, coming on once more to wrap up this uh, little series we've been working on. I appreciate it very much. Well, it's my pleasure, and I'm very excited for this last session. Yeah, I, I should um, just remind people where we've been. This is episode three of three. Uh, in the first, we uh, covered Mark's story, his conversion, if you will, from a Pado baptist to a Credo-Baptist perspective. Um, and in the second, we offered a critique of that Pado baptist position, which was presented, I hope, fairly in the first episode. I, I really enjoyed those first two episodes, Mark. I think um, uh, you know it was fun, at least for me, to have the conversation with you. I hope the listeners have enjoyed it as well. Uh, but in this third episode, our objective is to offer a positive presentation of the credo-baptist position. Um, credo-baptist, uh, we could also say the Baptist p- position. You know why it is that we mm-hmm. believe that baptism should be b- for believers only and not for uh, infants, and not for infants or the children of believers uh, so this is episode three of three, and I probably should say sorry for the delay. Our intention is – I don't know if I've stated it before <laughs> – is to put out one of these episodes every two weeks. Um, now it's been stated, right? Now everyone knows what we're trying to do, uh, and they also know that we failed to do it. Uh, it's been about a month. <laughs> Oopsies. <laughs> yeah, it's been about a month since that second episode was uh, published. But there's reason for it. Uh, Mark, uh, you know, um, I caught him in the middle of a pretty significant transition, I think – in the last month or two or three that I've talked to you, Mark, you've been in Alaska, you've been in Washington, you've been in Southern California, and uh, <laughs> now you are in your new home, uh, Valley yes. City, North Dakota, where you are uh, laboring to plant a church. I think it would only be right for you to tell us about how things are going there in Valley City before we get into the subject matter today. Yes, yes. Well, things are going very well. Uh, we've moved into our apartment here, and things have been uh, kicked off, and um, we are uh, going to start services here sometime in September. We're not exactly sure uh, about the, the date quite yet, but um, for anyone who's interested, you can look us up online. We're still working on the website, but it should be up fairly soon. You can find us at pilgrimsrbc.com. So we're Pilgrims Reformed Baptist Church. That's been renamed from Valley Baptist Church. And uh, you can also find us at Facebook, um, Pilgrims RBC, and uh, we look forward to um, starting services here. And and what we've been doing lately is getting to know, and I've been preaching at Community Baptist Church in Fargo, which is the sending church that's actually planting us here. So uh, it's been very nice to get to know many of the families and people at Community Baptist and uh, Pastor Doug Vandermeulen, he's the minister there. Uh, and I have been able to meet several times, and we continue to do that over the summer as uh, we look to uh, start here a confessional Reformed Baptist church. It's, I'm still pinching myself. Yeah, it's ha- it has to be surreal. I mean, this all came together pretty quick, didn't it? I mean, at least from my perspective, it seems quick. Um, it did, yes. It, it, it uh, manifested itself, the opportunity, and uh, initially I sort of – said, no, I, I don't think that's for me. And then it kind of kept manifesting itself. And we visited back in March and the church said, we want you guys. Um, and then we responded and said, after prayer and, 
a lot of conversation. Uh, you know, this is something that we want too. So, and then the moves from Alaska to uh, California, then a vacation in Washington, back to California, and then a road trip out to North Dakota have led us here. It's been a wild ride, but God is good. That's great. That's really good to hear, Mark. So I do appreciate you taking the time to record all of these episodes in the midst of all of that. Uh, I know you've put a lot of work into it. Uh, You've really taken the lead in terms of presenting the content of these episodes, and and I appreciate that very much. I know our people who are listening to it are enjoying it, and um, that's that's encouraging. Yeah, it's it's a real privilege to be able to have these discussions with you. I know that you also had you were also on vacation a little bit, so that's that's why there's a delay as well. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about that before we started to record. Um, it was a vacation for the books, one that I am now back to work and recovering from, <laughs> uh, including blown tires on a trailer and a sick kid, and even some days in the hospital uh, uh, with our son David recovering from pneumonia and. 10 days of fever, all sorts of stuff. I'm not going to take oh the time to tell the story, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So here we Sounds- are getting, getting back into the swing of things. Yeah. There we go. But I think this episode is, is very important, you know, that we finally present a positive, um, uh, presentation of the credo Baptist or Baptist perspective. If people have listened to the last two episodes, they can probably put the pieces of the puzzle together, you know, mm-hmm. by by listening to our presentation of the Pado Baptist perspective and our critique of it. You can kind of get at the credo perspective, I guess. But I think it's beneficial for us to just state it directly, and I think it'll be mm-hmm. uh, clear. Uh, as we go about it, go about it in that way. I was wondering, Mark, if I could just begin by reading our confession. Uh, on yeah. on uh, on the subject, we have that a, would be great. We have a confession of faith um, called the Second London Confession, sometimes called the 1689 London Baptist Confession, and um, of course the 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 purpose of a confession of faith is not really to prove anything or to 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 argue a, a case as much as it is just to state a, a position. So it's a good place to go if you ever wonder what it is that we believe about this or that. But chapter 28 of our confession is entitled Of Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we have two paragraphs here that just give a general overview of our view of baptism and the Lord's Supper, those two sacraments, which are here called ordinances. Uh, Paragraph 1 of chapter 28 says, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution, appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. And then paragraph 2 says, These holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called, according to the commission of Christ. Chapter 29 then focuses in upon baptism specifically. Chapter 30 focuses on the Lord's Supper. But chapter 29 says this, of baptism Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Paragraph 2. Those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in, and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. And so, believer's baptism is clearly stated there, and also a denial of infant baptism. Paragraph 3, the outward element to be used in this ordinance is water, wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Paragraph 4, immersion 
or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. So there's the doctrine stated most directly. I think it would be best for us probably just to go back and to walk through those paragraphs, or at least most of them. I think some of them Mm -hmm. are a little outside the scope of our focus here, um, Mm -hmm. though they are important. Uh, But I think we should walk through the pertinent paragraphs. Um, How about paragraph 1 of chapter 28? Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed Mm -hmm. by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of of the world. Yeah, yeah. I I see – this and the the first part of chapter twenty nine when it says baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ uh, to really be saying that since baptism only exists as a New Testament sacrament or ordinance, it's really the New Testament that should define the way that we practice it. Um, and that's sort of the Baptist argument, and that's the. In my opinion, that's simply following the rules of of good hermeneutics. Um, I think it would be a, a hermeneutical flaw, as Walter Chantry has noted in his little uh, pamphlet on um, baptism and covenant theology, that uh, to gain the evidence for a positive New Testament rite uh, from the Old Testament is is a hermeneutical flaw. Can, can and, you define real quick, Mark, what you mean by positive? Right, or what the, right. the confession means by positive. I mean, define that for the listener. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is yeah. a positive? So so here's – I think this would be a, a good example. Um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, uh, soul, mind, and strength is something that is in the moral law. So um, uh, a moral law is something that is built into the created order. But a positive precept is is something that is spoken by God – to be done, that's not necessarily something that we would know uh, from the moral law or from natural law. So a, a positive precept, for example, would be circumcision. You know, you wouldn't know naturally that you ought to uh, circumcise um, in, in, your your male children uh, from nature um, or from the moral law, uh, which is which has abiding validity. Um, but positive precepts are connected with uh, particular covenants within scripture. So Adam um, wouldn't necessarily know not to eat of that particular tree, would he? Exactly. Unless exactly. God told him, don't eat of that tree. That's a great example. So God gives this positive precept within the covenant of works with Adam, and he says, don't eat of this tree. There's no way Adam would have known that unless God had specifically told him. Now, did Adam know from his nature that he is to worship God uh, and to love him? Yes. Right. Okay. Good. So when we are talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, we are talking about things ordained by God, by Mm -hmm. Christ, and they are positive. uh, Exactly. Positive precepts. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And so basically the argument here is the exact same one that a lot of Reformed people give in terms of the progress of redemption. Um, or. Walter Chantry in uh, his little pamphlet quotes Patrick Fairbairn, and uh, who's a Presbyterian who says this, There cannot be a sure canon of interpretation than that everything which affects the constitution and destiny of the New Testament church has its clearest determination in the New Testament scriptures. And so 
since baptism is a positive law of the New Testament appointed by Jesus, uh, it's important to realize that the covenantal context under which that positive precept of baptism falls is a very important is is of it was of great importance uh, to understanding the sacrament of of baptism. And of course, just to uh, go back to the the previous podcast we had, this is a difference between paedo-baptists and baptists. Um, paedo-baptists, uh, Burkhoff writes, if you'll recall in last analysis, um, they utilized the command of Abraham to circumcise his male ch- children as proof of infant baptism. Now, to take into account what we've said, we we look at that as Baptists, and we say, look, looking to a previous covenant's positive laws that have now been voided, uh, you know, circumcision is now voided by Christ's last will and testament, um, to, to look at previous covenant's positive laws to to understand to understand the primary importance of baptism is very problematic. Yeah. So why are we looking to the laws given concerning the application of circumcision, the sign of the old covenant, and why are we bringing them into uh, uh, the, the new covenant and allowing them to govern how we think we should apply baptism? Uh, exactly. That, that's the question we're asking. Actually, as I was yeah. thinking about this. Um, uh, wouldn't it be kind of like um, looking to the laws that govern the Passover feast in order to determine how it is that we observe the Lord's Supper? Mm-hmm. I mean, there there's even clearer relationship in the New Testament between Passover and the Lord's Supper than I think there is between uh, baptism and circumcision in terms of the timing in which those two practices are tied together. Sure. Christ instituted the Lord's Supper during that pa- that last Passover feast as he was celebrating mm-hmm. with his disciples. So could not one reason then, well, maybe we should only observe the Lord's Supper once a year? And, and per- some people have. And perhaps we should observe the Lord's Supper not in the church but in the home. Mm. And certainly our children should be a part of it. <laughs> right, because um, undoubtedly, and this is one of the big things that uh, was – Problematic for Fred Malone was looking back at the Passover and seeing that children were included. There's no other food in the home except what they're having at the Passover. So if the children are going to eat, they're going to partake of the Passover. Mm-hmm. And so if you follow those same hermeneutical principles that you do for baptism into the into the New Testament or from circumcision into to New Testament baptism as you do for Passover to the Lord's Supper, um, it seems like these are applied in sort of jarring hermeneutical ways by paedo-baptists. Whereas for Baptists, we say no. It's very obvious that the Lord's Supper is not is not the Passover. Mm-hmm. They have a they have an analogy with the sure, Passover, sure. and just like baptism and circumcision are not a replacement of each other, but they do have a certain analogy for each other. Uh, we have no problem in saying the way that the Old Covenant defines and utilizes these positive commands of circumcision and Passover, they 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 don't um, impinge upon the way that we as believers in the New Covenant would celebrate them. Right. So the Pado baptist really does look to the Old Covenant to determine how it is, the, the, the Old Covenant sign of circumcision, to determine how it is that baptism is to be applied. 
Uh, yes. We're saying no, uh, though there is some connection between baptism and circumcision. An analogy is the word that you continue to use, Mark, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not the same thing. We need to look to the pages of the New Testament and listen carefully to the words of Christ and the apostles of Christ to determine how we are to apply this sign. Yes, yes, and Wonderful. and it's it's important that many many Pado Baptists have have said like I'm I'm reading right now from a quote by Benjamin Warfield. He says it is true that there is no expressed command to baptize infants in the New Testament, no express record of the baptism of infants, and no passages so stringently implying it that we must infer from them that infants were baptized. And he says if such warrant as this were necessary to justify the usage, we should have to leave it completely in incompletely justified. And then, he go, and then he says, but the lack of this express warrant is something so far short of forbidding the right. And if the continuity of the church through all ages can be made good, the warrant for infant baptism is not to be sought in the New Testament. I mean, the, this is amazing in consideration at the Westminster, I think, it says that uh, baptism is a is an institution of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but he anyway, he says the warrant for infant baptism is not to be sought in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament when the church was instituted and nothing short of an actual forbidding of it in the New Testament would warrant our omitting now. So there you have Benjamin Warfield saying, even though baptism um, – well, he's not saying this yet. I'm saying this. <laughs> Even though baptism is a positive institution of the New Testament, he says there's no express command to baptize infants in the, in the New Testament and no passages so stringently implying it that we must infer from that that infants were baptized. From a Baptist perspective, we say that's just a misunderstanding of what a positive law is within within a particular covenant. Mm-hmm. Right. So as you're saying this, it, it, it just reminds me that it does all come down to fundamental presuppositions, right? Mm. Uh, it just continues mm-hmm. to come down to this argument that the Pado-Baptists make that uh, the Old Covenant um, is the covenant of grace under a different yeah. external yeah. administration. Right? Yeah, I, I, think, I think the primary thing in the Baptist covenantal argument is that we don't see any other covenant – but the new covenant as the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the covenant of grace, as a lot of Reformed theologians have mentioned, is, is basically the historical outworking of, of the Pactum Salutis, or, the, or what's called the covenant of redemption. You know, there was, an, uh, there was an inner Trinitarian covenant made before the foundations of the world where the Father promised to the Son a people, and the Son promised to the Father obedience, and the Spirit promised to the Father and the Son that he would apply the benefits of redemption to uh, his people. And so we see the covenant of grace interlocking sort of with that pactum, with that pactum salutis or covenant of redemption, uh, which means that Abraham, Moses, David, and Noah, uh, any Old Testament um, covenant, uh, they can point to and they can promise the rich grace of the new covenant that we have. But when Jesus Christ dies – that is when there's the actual formal establishment of the new covenant. So the, the variance of, of of a promise, you know, a promise that's given but not formally ratified, as opposed to when it, that promise is actually ratified in the blood of Christ. And um, there's this really great quote by uh, John Owen uh, in Pascal Deneau's book called uh, "The Distinctiveness of Baptist Covenant Theology." 
And uh, he quotes from from Owen here, who actually says what Baptists say about the formal establishment of the new covenant. Um, John Owen writes on Hebrews 8, 6, he says, But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as far superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Now, of course, those promises are given in the Old Testament. But then uh, Pascal says Owen concentrates on the verb namatheteo, which means established, to explain the difference between the covenant of grace before and after Jesus Christ. Hmm. And um, uh, do you think it would be helpful to read this quote by Owen? I mean, it's fairly lengthy. Go for it. Yes, let's take the time. Why not? (laughs) All right. So uh, uh, John Owen says, this is the meaning of the word nenamathetetai. It means reduced into a fixed state of a law or ordinance. Hmm. And then he says, all the obedience required in it all the worship appointed to it, all the privileges exhibited in it, and the grace administered with them are all given for a statute, law, and ordinance to the church. That which before, and here's a very important point, this is the the most important statement, I think, that which before lay hid in promises in many things obscure was now brought to light. It's the whole point of Paul's, you know, the mystery of the gospel. Uh, And then John Owen says, and that covenant, which had invisibly in the way of promise, put forth its efficacy under types and shadows, was now solemnly sealed, ratified, and confirmed in the death and resurrection of Christ. It had before the confirmation of promise, which is an oath, but now the confirmation of a covenant, which is blood. And uh, then he says, that which before had no visible outward worship proper and peculiar to it is now made the only rule and instrument of worship to the whole church. So what did not have an outward worship proper and peculiar to it, uh, because the blood had not been given yet, has now come to pass and is the only rule and instrument of worship to the whole church. Nothing being uh, to be admitted in that respect but what belongs to it. And is appointed by it. The apostle intends this by Nenamathetetai, the legal establishment of the new covenant with all the ordinances of its worship. Mm-hmm. I mean, that in summary is what Baptist covenant theology is about. <laughs> you know, uh, so in Pascal's book, he talks about uh, Baptist covenant theology has a uh, a revealed concluded formula. So it is the new covenant is revealed in the Old Testament under types and shadows and promises and people and and uh, and and all of those things. But it, it's while it's revealed in the Old Testament, it's concluded formally uh, in the in the new covenant in Christ's blood. And that's exactly what the London Confession of Faith 7:3 says. Uh, It says, this covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam Mm -hmm. in the promises of salvation by the seed of the woman. So you got Genesis 3.15. And afterwards, by farther steps, and and here we got the progress of redemption, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. So where the Presbyterians say substance administration, there's different administration, but the same exact substance – Baptists say new covenant was promised, it was revealed, it was foreshadowed, 
it was typified in the Old Testament in many portions and in many parts uh, or ways, as Hebrews 1 1 says. But none of the Old Testament covenants are substantially the New Covenant. Mm -hmm. Only the New Covenant is, as my professor in seminary, Dr. Boss, says, uh, the covenant of new creation. Uh, The Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic, Davidic, and covenant of works are not the covenant of new creation. So you have just, in in a very brief amount of time, described the Reformed Baptist um, view on covenant theology and have contrasted Mm -hmm. it a bit with the Reformed Pado-Baptist view of covenant theology. And I appreciate that very much. I think it's one of my favorite things to talk about, actually, is covenant yeah. theology, because for me, <laughs> me it, the light bulb went on, you know, when yeah. I started to understand covenant theology. I really began to understand, I think, um, the pages of Holy Scripture much, much better. Yeah. Um, so oh, so I love it. But but how does that pertain to the issue of baptism? Um, Good. How does Good. it pertain? Uh, um, basically this. Uh Abraham, Moses, David, um, and the covenant of works with Adam. They these covenants do not define the new covenant people of God. Hmm. Um, now it is interesting that uh, Pedro Baptists don't actually follow their own continuity principle in defining the people of God. They're they're inconsistent. Um, it's it's obvious that uh, unbelievers' children in the New Testament who are Jews could be circumcised in the Old Testament, uh, as is the case with that you know the the first generation that came out of Egypt is evil, wicked, they perish in the wilderness. But that second generation of of males is circumcised because of the promise given to Abraham. Uh, and uh, Pado Baptists though will refuse to um, they will refuse to baptize the children of wicked people who may have had Christian parents. Hmm. Um, isn't that a, 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 isn't that inconsistent? Now, it, it, so, so what you're ahead. saying is that under the old covenant, um, uh, a great, great grandchild of an Israelite mm-hmm. would still be circumcised. Yep. But, Reformed Pado Baptists today don't necessarily, most of them at least, would not yeah. apply the same uh, principle to, to baptism. In other words, the great, great, mm-hmm. great grandchild of a Christian man would not be eligible yeah. for baptism. And and my question would be, what what right did they have to do that? Uh, if they're following the, their continuity principle of the covenant of grace is substance is has a substance in the Old Testament, what gave them the right? To change the way that that um, the sacrament is is administered. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, interestingly, some Pado Baptists have tried to be a little bit more consistent, like that. Like I remember reading William Perkins in uh, when I was going through the whole issue of Pado Baptism and Credo Baptism, and he is the father of English Puritanism, and he teaches that succeeding generations of of people could be baptized even if their parents were wicked, but. Uh, like you just noted, most Pado Baptists, that is not the way that they do that. Um, well, well, there would be some places in the world then, I, 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 maybe even many places in the world where everybody would be eligible for baptism, perhaps. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> if, if, well, I mean, you know, if you really try to, to 
do the research and find a Christian somewhere in your genealogy, you know. Yep. Uh, yeah. I, th- I would say a lot of people probably could. Not not the whole earth, of course, but. Um. <laughs> but but many, many people could. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I, I guess this is just all to say, um, Pascal Deneau in his book says, uh, it is undeniable that the paedobaptists practiced paedobaptism on the basis of a covenant where baptism did not exist. Right. And uh, to quote the Renahan brothers, uh, they say in their article in the book A Covenantal Heritage, the Old Testament covenants do indeed reveal the new covenant, but in a progressive typological way. And so um, the new covenant people is not the people of Abraham. It's not the people of David. It's not the people of Moses. Um, It is the people who have been purchased by Christ's blood. And that's very clear when Christ is instituting the Lord's Supper. And he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's in Christ's blood, we have to ask, who does he shed his blood for? And, in well, in response to that, as Calvinists, we would say he shed his blood for the elect that were given him in eternity in that inter-Trinitarian covenant of redemption. Right. Indeed. Yeah. So, um... I also think, I mean, maybe in regards to this too, uh, we could talk about the uh, regulative principle of worship. Um, yeah, let's do that. Okay. Yeah, because I, I, I think that this point really uh, dovetails nicely with this whole point that it is the New Testament, it's the New Covenant that ought to define the people of God. Uh, you know, the regulative principle of worship, very, very reformed. Uh, I, you know, every, every single one of – well, Calvin and all reformers beyond him held to this regulative principle of worship. Lutherans have not accepted it, but in, in any case. Uh, the regulative principle of worship, what it means is, is that we are only supposed to worship God in ways that God has commanded. Um, so rather than what we think – might be beneficial to us. <laughs> you know, Calvin would say, what we think is beneficial to us probably isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and God has already told us what is beneficial. Um, and so, uh, and so th- th- this is a principle of worship that is integral to the way that we ought to uh, do worship in the new covenant time. And uh, Walter Chantry, in his pamphlet on this has written that if you allow Old Testament examples to alter New Testament principles regarding the church, he says, you have hermeneutically opened the door to Rome's atrocities. It is upon such rules of interpretation that the priest and the mass have been justified. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think our Paedo-Baptist brothers would do really well to listen to our critique here. We're not saying that Infant baptism is, a, is necessarily, in people's minds, a last vestige of Rome. Uh, we're not saying that. But we are saying that if it is true that there's no New Testament warrant for infant baptism or express reason based upon the New Testament why we should do it, then the arguments that the Roman Catholic Church makes for the priesthood and other atrocities, as Walter Chantry said, wouldn't those be uh, legitimate in some sense then? Um, right, because Rome, just to explain the argument here a little bit more, Rome, when asked to explain why they have priests, 
they point where? Uh, they, Old Testament. They point to the Old Testament and say that principle still stands um, today even in the New Covenant, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we're saying that the Pado-Baptist is making a similar argument actually for the way that they administer baptism. Mm-hmm. Now it's it's on a different you know basis. Sure. It, uh, yeah. It's it's on a much more uh, you know I mean they're they're defending it on the basis of the covenant of grace. But I think the hermeneutical point there mm-hmm. needs to be listened to by by our Pado Baptist brothers, in because from our perspective, infant baptism violates the regulative principle of worship, and it does so on the same basis that. Uh, that the priesthood or the mass or any sort of treasury of merit or you know anything like that would 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 offend the regulative principle of worship mm-hmm. uh, as well. Simple additions uh, to what God has has spoken, um, and so the principle there is a good one. Uh, if baptism is a positive precept of the New Testament uh, ordained by Jesus Christ, why can we not find? evidence of it in the New Testament in any sort of stringent manner. Right. I think it's a strong argument. Um, I think it's a very important one. Uh, I've come to love the regulative principle of worship. Uh, I've Mm. come to see it as a very freeing thing, actually, though people would probably consider it the exact opposite, something constraining. It frees us just Mm. to simply be faithful to that which God has commanded us to do in in the church. Absolutely. And there's a broad misunderstanding of the regulative principle of worship out there that that it is sort of constraining. It's in what you what I, I liked what you said because from the outset you have to understand the historical context of coming out of Rome, uh, you know, from from the reformers' perspective, saying this is about my conscience as a Christian, not wanting to worship in any other way than what God has has displayed to us in the New Covenant Scriptures. And uh, and so it's actually a very freeing thing. It has to do with our with our consciences being free to love God and serve Him in the way that He has declared. Right. So paragraph one of chapter twenty eight of the, the the confession, our confession, is it's very brief, and I think you know it's possible to read it and just to just brush it to the side. But it's very important. Mm-hmm. It's packed with very mm-hmm. important language. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances. Um, these are things ordained or ordered by Christ, of a positive and sovereign institution. Okay, so we have a positive law here when we're talking Mm -hmm. about baptism. Um, And and so therefore, we are to pay very careful attention to what Christ said as the only lawgiver concerning how baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be administered within the church. Uh, We're to look to the pages of the New Testament and to the um, principles of the New Covenant for our answers and not to the Old Amen. It's profound. It, it's very important. Paragraph two. Um, could we move on to it, Mark? Uh, in yes. fact, I won't say much about this because I think it's outside the scope of our uh, conversation here. But these holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. The, the idea here is that baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be administered within the church – um, within the context of the church by qualified qualified men who are mm-hmm. appointed to the ministry. Um, really what this is forbidding is practicing or administering baptism or the Lord's Supper outside of the church. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I, yeah. I've actually heard of people who 
have decided to baptize their children on their own, like in the bathtub or something, you know. <laughs> have you ever heard of such a thing? I have. I have not heard of that. Okay. Well, <laughs> you and I come from different traditions, I guess. I've heard of people celebrating the Lord's Supper sure. know, on, with, with, with their families or something, but I've never heard that with baptism. Yeah. I, I've come to really believe strongly when it comes to both the baptism and the Lord's Supper that it's inappropriate to observe them mm. anywhere except in the context of the church gathered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Amen. And, uh, this I think what what these answers are showing us too is that the Reformed Baptists were not Anabaptists. Yes, um, you know, as the Anabaptists would open it up to many different types of people who could baptize, um, or to a certain extent to say uh, baptism doesn't really even matter anymore. You know, the letter kills, the Spirit gives life, sort of stuff. And here the Reformed Baptists, early Reformed Baptists are saying, no, this is to be continued in this church, the end of the world, and is to be done uh, in and among God's people by qualified men who have been called to this. Right. Chapter 29, paragraph 1, I think um, uh, is incredibly important. We should spend some time on this, but here I'll read Uh it again. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. There's some repetition there, right? Uh Uh, To be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Why is that paragraph so significant to our conversation here, Mark? Yeah, I well, first, I think it's such a beautiful paragraph because it shows the rich sacramental language that Baptists utilize when it comes to the sacrament of baptism. What, uh, we what ha- do you mean by sacramental language? Uh, well, um, to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him. I mean, this is focusing particularly first and foremost upon what God is doing for the individual uh, within baptism, uh, signing his fellowship to uh, – signing the fellowship of this Christian to God in his death and resurrection, union with Christ, remission of sins. That's sort of what I mean by uh, this rich uh, sacramental language You know, in, in, within the scriptures. Um, baptism is is called the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Well, it's not called that because uh, because the water itself does anything. Um, it's called that because because the sign and the thing signified are sacramentally united. Um, so you can attribute the sign to the thing signified and the thing signified to the sign. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just goes to show you that this this portion of the London Baptist Confession shows you that we have a rich sacramental heritage as Baptists. Now, I think I think the Lord's Supper, it's even more explicit from the Baptists, but here we have a great, a great uh, little section here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, and we hold that baptism is a means of grace. So, could you that define means? Their, could you define means of grace too? I'm going to press you on that, Mark, because I'm just trying yeah, to consider yeah, those who are listening. No, thank uh, you. What do we um, mean by I'm, means of grace? I'm glad because I have all of these terms that I use that I learned in seminary, <laughs> and, and, and you, a lot of people. You grew up in a reformed tradition too, you know. I so did, I know yeah. there are some who are unchurched who listen to this. I actually met one today. It was kind of exciting. Wow, you listen to this? Okay, oh, wow. cool. That's great. Um, but but also, um, 
many in our congregation came not from a Reformed tradition, but from an evangelical tradition where mm. s- the word sacrament was never used. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the reasons for it. I think it reminded people of Rome or something. But okay. uh, you know, we use it now. Uh, also, any mention of the means of grace um, was never heard, probably because mm-hmm. it reminded people of Rome too. So these things need yeah. to be defined for for our people. I think over and over. Absolutely. Again. Well, uh, this is the way. Um, I, actually, I was just recently reading Richard Barcellus's book, "The Lord's Supper as a Means uh, as a Means of Grace More Than a Memory." I think it's called. Yeah, yeah, it's a good little book. Yeah, and and he, I'm gonna. This is a paraphrase of his definition of means of grace. But basically, means of grace are the pathway uh, are the pathways through which God dispenses, gives, confirms, and establishes His grace, and that the Holy Spirit utilizes to bring the, to bring that grace. So, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so. For example, with with the Lord's Supper, uh, the Lord's Supper is a means or a pathway, if you will, by the Holy Spirit's work of uh, a confirmation that we are partakers in the body and blood of Christ. It, it it is a way that God's grace gets to us, not because of the bread and wine, but because of the Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ and feeding us with Christ spiritually mm-hmm. um, by faith. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, I think when and, people hear that, they do think Rome, though. Yeah. They they, they think of the Roman Catholic Catholic, uh, Catholic doctrine, um, well, where God dispenses His grace through the Church. Um, you know, and and so this language kind of reminds them of that. How is our view of the means of grace different yeah. from the Roman view? Well, I would say I understand what you mean when when people say God dispenses grace to the church in terms of the Roman Catholic view. Um, we Protestants believe that too. God dispenses His grace in, in terms of the church, but we understand that in a very different way. Right. Um, uh, the church, in the Roman Catholic sense, has almost become a a. Um, like the reason it was it was good that that Christ went away into the heavenly places is because he established the church and the church itself as the institution uh, can dispense grace um, and so in in the Lord's Supper for example uh, or in in baptism what happens is the sign of baptism and the thing that baptism signifies become the exact same thing mm-hmm. for Rome. So uh, what what Rome says is uh, the baptismal waters confer the forgiveness of sins. We, uh, as Reformed people, we do not say that that the waters of baptism confer the forgiveness of sins. What 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 we say is that the the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit confer the forgiveness of sins, and that is uh, signed, sealed, and ratified to us in in baptism. And it, there's a similar thing going on with the the Lord's Supper too. Um, so the, in the Roman Catholic scheme, and I think we're getting a little far afield here, but in the, in the Roman <laughs> Catholic scheme, transubstantiation means that the elements themselves of bread and wine become the literal and physical body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, now uh, Lutherans say the Lord's Supper Jesus, Jesus' uh, body is physically present, but it is in, with, and under 
the elements. It is not, it is, you know, the, the elements are not transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. But the Reformed always said, Christ is in heaven. He is seated at God's right hand bodily, and we have a connection to him through the Holy Spirit. And it is through this, and it's by the supper um, that that connection that we have with the Spirit is to Christ is strengthened, ratified, confirmed, and uh, you know, like Paul says, as you receive the Lord, so walk in Him. Mm-hmm. Well, the the Lord's Supper is a table of nourishment for our faith. Right. In my mind, the difference between the Reformed view and the Roman Catholic view, the Roman Catholic Church tends to speak of the sacraments functioning as a means of grace in a kind of automatic way, you know, mm-hmm. so, so that uh, if you partake of the Lord's Supper, you get the grace, and it, it it's just in the act itself that grace is conferred, whereas right. our view is that, no, faith matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, faith matters so much so that there is th- – it is possible to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and to actually eat yes. condemnation upon yourself, eat mm-hmm. and drink condemnation upon yourself instead of um, yeah. grace. Um, but it is a means of grace. I, I agree with you fully, and I really appreciate Barcelo's book in that this is more than just a, a memorial. It's more than just a meal um, where we remember Jesus. No, the mm-hmm. Spirit of God uses the Lord's Supper and baptism uh, in very powerful ways to feed and nourish his people. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> wow, that, that I, I took saw, a while to get to it. I, I sorry if I took us off course. A no little problem. Bit. So okay. yeah, I mean, just it's the means of grace are pathways through which God gives His grace to us mm-hmm. by the Holy Spirit. But you cannot separate the sign of baptism from what baptism signifies. They're That's distinct, the point. but That's not the separate. Point. Yeah. Right. Yes. yes. Okay. So, <laughs> um, where were we? Oh yeah, means of grace. Um, so uh, interesting that uh, in Lewis Burkhoff's systematic theology, he actually has this interesting statement here. He says it can readily be seen how baptism can strengthen the work of faith in the adult recipient, but it is not so apparent how it can operate as a means of grace in the case of children who are entirely unconscious of the significance of baptism and cannot yet exercise faith. In other words, uh, in other words, what what Burkhoff is saying here is, I get how an adult who believes in Jesus and is and goes through baptism can be strengthened sure. in their faith and nourished by that baptism, but in the case of a child, how can baptism be a means of grace? So, in 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 the Baptist scheme, with a credo uh, in the credo Baptist scheme, believers' baptism, it's very easily understood and known how this can be a means of grace. But what Burkhoff is struggling with is, okay, how do I apply that means of grace language that I use then to children of believers who are baptized? And uh, he, he, in his systematics, he sort of offers three solutions to this conundrum that he brings up. And he's, he, first, he basically says it's possible to proceed on the assumption that the children offered for baptism are regenerated. So we have the presumptive regeneration idea that there's the seed of faith in, in believers' children. Um, and then secondly, he says, we could also say that attention may be called to the fact that the operation of baptism as a means of grace is not necessarily limited to the moment of its administration. Mm-hmm. So someone may be baptized, but that, may, that baptism may become effective many years later. And so we can see how it's a means of grace. But um, 
I, I don't think that alleviates the tension here. But uh, anyway, third, he says that infant baptism is also a means of grace for the parents who present their child for the baptism. It serves to strengthen their faith in the promises of God, etc. So, um, I, I, from a Baptist perspective, you know, how would we respond to these solutions? Well, it'd be to say they're really not solutions to the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, first, most paedo Baptists I know are very uncomfortable with presumptive regeneration, so that takes away the first solution. Second solution doesn't even deal with the original problem. Uh, you know, he's asking, how is this a means of grace for my child? And then he says, third, we may understand it as a means of grace for the parents. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't actually answer the question at all. Um, it's, it's the second solution that is a little bit more difficult to deal with because uh, it was the separation of baptism as a means of grace from the moment of its administration. And just, just out of curiosity, Joe, I, how, would, how would you respond to that? That, well, it's okay to baptize children because – uh, because when you baptize them, it, it, it's, it, it is a means of grace, but in the future. Well, it may be a means of grace. I, I mean, yeah. there, there's, there's doubt there. It, it's not necessarily functioning as a means of grace in every instance, then, yeah. <laughs> uh, but would only function as a means of grace um, years later if the child uh, grows to, to believe in Christ. And, mm-hmm. and that's... Um, so really what you end up with then is the Baptist argument, um, but you have this awkward gap of time that's inserted and no mm. no real reason for it. Um, yeah, you have the Baptist argument with a gap of time inserted so that you can still hold to a practice. I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with you there. Um, and I think the may is important. It may be a means of grace. It may not. Well, if you're not holding to presumptive regeneration, it, it pretty much uh, pretty much alleviates that second point for me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as as a Baptist, we have the privilege of also remembering our baptisms, right? And and uh, call baptism a means of grace because when a believer looks back on that baptism, he can remember it. Um, as a as a as a credible sign that he has been sealed with the Holy Spirit if he's a believer, um, and so uh, if we have faith in Jesus, we can look back on baptism that we have been engrafted into Christ. Um, but you notice that I said there we can look back. Someone who's baptized as an infant has no remembrance of their baptism, and. Um, you know, I, I guess in consideration of Burkhoff's inability to show that the supper is a means of grace for believer, for believers, um, or for believers' children, I should say. Uh, I'm convinced that as a Baptist, I can actually hold to a more consistent means of grace view than a Pado Baptist can. Yeah, I agree. Just as a pastor, I know that it's a very powerful thing um, to prepare someone for baptism. To baptize them and then to remind them from time to time of their baptism, mm. uh, showing all of the things that were signified uh, in mm-hmm. in that act. You know, um, it's a very powerful thing, and those who have received baptism as infants uh, really are disengaged from from all of that. Mm-hmm. I guess they can only uh, imagine it, but but they did not experience it in a memorable way. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, and th- this is a challenge again that I would pose to Pado Baptists. When you tell people, remember your baptism, one of my friends in, in seminary said this one time, uh, a Reformed Baptist guy said, you know, when you guys remember your baptisms, do you just like imagine it taking place? <laughs> and, I, and at the time I was like, oh, that kind of sounds rude, but Mm-hmm. It followed that logic to its to its extent. You cannot say remember your baptism mm-hmm. if you don't if if you were not. I mean, Burkhoff just said, um, uh, it says that uh, the, in the case of children who are entirely unconscious of the significance of baptism and cannot yet exercise faith, they don't know what's happening to them. Um, uh, so. Yeah, I think that answers that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So there is something about baptism uh, where um, we are, are are being strengthened and encouraged and, and mm-hmm. uh, nourished through through the sacrament, through the symbolism that is contained therein. Uh, mm-hmm. There is this sense in which God is saying something to us, uh, right? You, you have been washed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. You've been raised to a newness of life. Um, that's actually a concept that I really came to appreciate as I began to be exposed to Reformed uh, theology. When I was growing up, the emphasis was always on um, the fact that baptism was a kind of profession of faith, which is also true and very important. Uh, but yeah. what was minimized for some reason in, in, in the tradition I grew up in was the idea that, no, God is actually doing something – for and to uh, the believer, the one who is Ooh, who is amen. being baptized, uh, yeah, there, there there is a, it's a means of grace. You're, you're being nourished. Um, yes, I th- I think that on on both ends you have a polemic, uh, you know, from Baptists against Pado Baptists saying baptism is a profession of faith, mm-hmm. and then you have the polemic against again on the opposite end of Pado Baptists saying to Baptists, you completely relinquish you know what God does in this sacrament. Um, and, uh, and well, sometimes in reform polemics against Baptists, you have this idea that really it's only God that does this in the sacrament. And that's all that's emphasized in regard to Baptists. Mm-hmm. But both in both traditions, uh, there is a primary emphasis upon God's grace, but also the fact that, um, that there is a profession of faith. There is a pledging of ourselves to walk in newness of life. You can read the Westminster, go read the second London Baptist. I mean, like we just read, um, you know, Peter says that baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you Hmm. not as, not as the washing of a way of dirt from the body again, like not the water itself. Right. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience. And it's very interesting. G.R. Beasley Murray in his book, uh, Baptism in the New Testament, says, think about that. Baptism, which corresponds to this, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. That cannot be the case for an infant, but that can definitely be the case for a believer. Yes. It is a profession of faith. Um, how important it is to recognize this. Sadly, today, I think in a lot of circles, the altar call has replaced baptism. 
Oh, wow. You know, where, where mm, to, in yeah. order to make a profession of faith, that means you have to get up and walk down an aisle in front of a group of people or to come mm. down onto the field, uh, you know, from your seat in the stadium or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, or the sinner's prayer has, has – The sinner's prayer. To. But in the New Testament, what do you see? You, you see that people are called uh, through the preaching of the gospel to believe upon Christ – to repent of their sins, and to be baptized. Well, why must they be baptized? It's not that baptism saves us. It's not that baptism mm-hmm. actually washes away our sins, but it's that baptism is that public profession of faith that we are called to make mm-hmm. um, when we do indeed repent and believe inwardly of our sins. Um, that, yeah. This is why baptism is so closely connected to salvation throughout the pages mm. of the New Testament. Peter, mm-hmm. on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching, and what does he call the group to do except repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some mm-hmm. have, have really misused that passage to insist that it's through baptism that we are it, – it is baptism itself that saves us, the waters of baptism, and that we do not receive the Holy Spirit until we are baptized. But that's not, that's not what Peter is saying. He's calling people to repent and believe inwardly, but closely connected to that is the need to be baptized to make that, that, credib- that, that yes. public profession of faith. And, and I think you see that connection when Paul says if you uh, c- confess with your mouth mm-hmm. and – with that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that the Lord rose him from the dead, you will be saved. There's this close connection between what takes place inwardly and what's manifested outwardly. Right. I mean, even as Jesus says, you know, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, uh, and um, yeah. Yeah. So how do we make, how do we confess Jesus as Lord? How, how do we do that? Well, according mm-hmm. to the New Testament, it's through the waters of baptism. Yeah. That that is how we confess that yeah. we are that we belong to Christ that we have been washed by His blood, uh, and that we are now walking as servants of His. Amen. And and actually, when when I uh, made my profession of faith in my, in my baptism, um, let's see, last June, um, or was it July? Can't remember. Um, but I remember that I was baptized. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I, I actually said, Jesus is Lord mm-hmm. uh, before I was plunged beneath there. That's where I made my – that's where I made that good confession. Um, and you know, if anybody has – if anybody wants to read a really uh, great little section on why baptism itself does not confer sins, there's this uh, exposition of the Heidelberg by Theodorus Vandergroh. Mm-hmm. Who was a contemporary of Wilhelmus Abrakel, who not very many people have heard of, but he was he was a very warm-hearted writer of Reformed theology, I believe in the 17th century. But anyway, um, and in Vandergrove's uh, commentary on the Heidelberg, if anyone's interested in why the Reformed say what they say about baptism and how it doesn't affect forgiveness, um, you should read his his they should read his commentary on that. Yeah. I really appreciated actually sitting in a class that Dr. Renahan was teaching where he um, he really did stress, though, uh, the importance of, of baptism and its close connection to saving faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope I'm not getting anyone in trouble here by just saying this in such a flippant way, but it, it was really a beautiful presentation of it. The waters of baptism don't wash away sins. We're not regenerated when we're baptized. Of course not. But, man, look at how – how much stress the New Testament places upon the need mm. to be baptized upon 
uh, having faith and repenting of your sins inwardly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it's just constant. Uh, the confession eventually gets to it and says things in a most direct way in paragraph two here. Um, uh, those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. It's quite mm-hmm. direct, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very direct. And, you know, it's it's very obviously the New Testament pattern. Um, and, you know, that's admitted by paedo-baptists too. Mm-hmm. So it, in some ways, it's nice as as a Baptist to be able to say, "Look, I, I'm I'm simply following the New Testament pattern. I see continuity of of God's gracious dealings with His people throughout history, but I follow the New Testament pattern when it comes to baptism. And uh, it, it's it's in some ways it's just that simple. And uh, I would also mention that Acts two, I think, functions better. Within a Baptist framework, <gasps> what? Uh, and why, why would I say that? Well, first, there's there's several considerations that you have to think about when you think about Acts chapter two. Uh, let's see, tw- uh, twenty eight and twenty nine. I think it is. Um, what is the promise? The promise is to you and to your children and to all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Well, that promise very clearly in the context of Acts and the end of Luke. Uh, is the Holy Spirit. And that's also Paul's definition of the promise given to Abraham, Galatians 3.14. Um, so it's the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. And we have to ask, who is Peter speaking to? He's speaking to devout Jews, uh, not to believers yet. You know, they, ha- they have their, uh, they have their, their hearts, um, uh, you know, their hearts within them are struck by Peter's preaching. Um, but, is it really legitimate to say that he's speaking to believers? He, if anything, he's speaking to potential believers, mm-hmm. old covenant Jews, those who have been circumcised. Uh, but I think it's a little bit of a stretch to say, oh, see believers and their children, because he says to you and your children, to these old covenant devout, albeit Jews. Um, and then third, uh, and this is just really simple, just follow the sentence through to the end. The promise is to you and to your children, to all those who are afar off, anyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Mm-hmm. And so you have to apply that last phrase to the first three categories. Oftentimes when Paedo-Baptists write, this is what they do. They say, see the promises to you and to your children, and they cut off the sentence right there. Well, no, it's not. And it changes the, the whole thrust of what they're saying when you say the promises to you and to your children and to all those who are far off, anyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, anyone. anyone. And um, you see that played out over and over in Acts. Those who are appointed to eternal life believe. Mm-hmm. Once they believe, you know, uh, Philip says or um, Peter says, who can, pre- who can prevent these people from, from being baptized? Uh, so it's, it's the third statement of Acts chapter 2 in that, those important verses that help us to clarify the whole thing. It's not a repetition of the Abrahamic promise, you and your seed. Uh, and then finally, um, and this is often something forgotten in discussions, I think, on Acts chapter 2, uh, we have to look at what actually happened after Peter said this. Because very clearly in Acts 2.41, those who repented of their sins and believed in Jesus were baptized. Right. And so I would ask my paedo-baptist friends who hold that they were, you know, if, if anything, they were most likely infants in the households. 
Well, how come in a crowd of a massive crowd of over three thousand people, uh, there you know here is not mentioned any infants. Here is here is mentioned that those who believed were baptized. Those who repented of their sins and believed uh, were baptized. Um, those uh, yeah those who received his message. Uh, who can receive a message? It's those who uh, can understand language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is the New Testament pattern consistently that it is those who believe who are baptized. Mm-hmm. Okay. Paragraphs three and four, I wonder if I could just go over them really quickly. The outward yeah, element sure. to be used in this ordinance is water, wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Matthew 28 uh, tells us to to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone is really arguing against that. Every once in a while, I do get something in my mailbox insisting that we are not to baptize with water, but all the references to baptism in the New Testament, I guess, have to do with just the baptism of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so, oh, I guess wow. somebody is spending some money uh, to send out pamphlets to pastors, you know, really arguing for that. <laughs> but, I, man, I, that seems – I don't know how you make that argument. Um yeah, with the, with the I mean the the Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah, Here, here's some water. What's preventing? <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm not sure. Um, I don't think many hold that view. At least I don't come across very many. Yeah, and then, I, th- I think we we are very much in agreement with our reformed oh, of course, Baptist brothers on this on the use of water. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and then immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of mm. this ordinance. We are not really in agreement there. Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think most Pado Baptists would acknowledge that it's okay to either sprinkle or to immerse. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, sprinkle, pour, or immerse. Sprinkle, pour, or so, immerse. Yeah. Um, All three are legitimate uh, ways of administering the sacrament. And uh, even though. You know, what's interesting is I I was recently told of a quote from Calvin in which I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, he says, um, the the administration of the sacrament is not so tied to sprinkling, pouring, or immersion. And then he says, nevertheless, baptizo, which is the Greek word for baptism, means to immerse, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I thought was uh, was sort of funny. Um, uh, but yes, in, in, in the paedo-baptist's mindset – even though – and I had, for example, Michael Horton in one class of mine in seminary in Doctrine of the Church said, uh, yeah, the early church, they immersed. <laughs> I mean again, I'm, I'm, I think I'm paraphrasing his, his point there. He said they immersed, but then they come out and they say, but it's not really it, – it's, it's not really um, – it doesn't – the mode doesn't matter. What matters is that you have water. Okay. Yeah, so so our view would that would, would be uh, as it is stated in in the confession that the due administration of this ordinance is immersion, and mm-hmm. as I understand it, due uh, really means it means proper. The the, the mm-hmm. proper um, mode is immersion, um, and I'm really pulling this from notes I have from a class I took from Renahan, but. Um, what the confession is doing here, I think, is making a distinction between valid and improper baptisms, mm-hmm. um, and the point being that some things may be improper but still legal or valid. Um, and I think historically, the Baptists, uh, you know, 
of course, would have never have accepted a, a Roman baptism or an infant mm. baptism from Presbyterianism. Right. Um, but uh, they may have received a Presbyterian believer's baptism. In other words, so e- even though it wasn't a proper way of doing it, right? Um, it, it something can still be improperly done. Let's say sprinkling on the head of an adult convert. Exactly, it is still valid, even though it was done improperly. I think that's the argument here. That that's the way the language is being used. Um, okay. If yeah. someone uh, thinks otherwise, you you know you can correct me. Uh, but I think yeah, that's what's I, going on here. But that question has been asked of me by uh, a Pado Baptist friend. Hmm. Uh, you know, I think. Well, how do you view what we're doing then? Is it all wrong? You know, even if we sprinkle, <laughs> and so it is an important subject to 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 delve into here. I, I think mm-hmm. you know, as a Reformed Baptist pastor, I would certainly urge and, and even insist that a person who was baptized as an infant, either in Rome or in Presbyterianism, be baptized as a believer. Yes, um, but I and. I, uh, sorry to cut you off here, but um, you know Presbyterians will all, oftentimes scoff that Baptists wouldn't uh, that we might not accept the Roman Catholic baptism. Um, I think in, in any fashion we would not accept the Roman Catholic baptism. Right. Um, and uh, that's but that's not just a a Baptist issue. No. Um, the, I, there have been Presbyterian f- debates over whether they should. Uh, accept Roman Catholic baptisms as well. So um, for those who think this is just a Baptist issue, well, no, it's not. And there are people today who think that as Presbyterians, they should not accept Roman Catholic baptisms. Hmm. But that's, I'm sorry, that's a little beside the point. No, it's (laughs) interesting. It really is. Yeah. Henry Um, James Thornwell is one who believed that you should not accept a Roman Catholic baptism because they're a false church. False church with a true church in her midst. Do you, do you agree with that statement? Is that what Calvin said? Uh, I've actually never heard that before. Uh, okay. um, I, I, I would agree that it's – I would say it's a, it's a false church being led by an antichrist figure um, in the pope. Uh, <laughs> well, now we've just so. gotten way off track, haven't we, Mark? Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Fourth in the series explaining what Mark just said, right? Uh, fourth episode in the series. <laughs> yeah. Why does the London Baptist call uh, the Pope the Antichrist? Oh, geez. Here we go. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I hope people get this sense. I mean, we've taken a lot of time uh, to, to deal with this issue. Um, mm-hmm. I do hope that people at least get the sense that we really are trying to do things according to the Word of God. Yeah. Um, it's very important to us as Reformed Baptists that um, yeah. that we operate in, in every realm according to the scriptures. Uh, we do not believe that we are free to uh, be innovative, right, um, and to decide mm-hmm. for ourselves how church is to be done or how the sacraments are to be administered, but we are to mm-hmm. look to, to God's word. Um, I hope that at least is coming through loud and clear. Yeah, and that's why – you know, the, the argument is baptizo means to immerse or to dip. And, uh, you know, even in terms of washings, what do you do with the hand? Well, you don't pick up water and kind of sprinkle it over your hand. You stick your hands into water. That's how people wash their hands. Um, so, so dipping or immersion and, you know, no one in the Old Testament would have, would have said, well, can we, can we cut off half the foreskin for a circumcision? <laughs> 
Um, and not to be uh, crude, um, but uh, no, they wouldn't have. Why? Because that's not what a circumcision is. A circumcision is a cutting off of the foreskin. And in the same way, baptizo, it means to dip or to immerse. So when it says, I baptize you, um, it means I dip you or I immerse you in the name. Um, and uh, I think that's that's a very important thing. Yeah. Okay, brother. Well, I think we better wrap this up. Um, hey, I yes. apologize for derailing us a couple times. You know, a couple of times <laughs> during this episode. That's my bad. And uh, uh, but, I, I threw us know. off too, especially with that Henry James Thornwell Roman Catholic stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully, people understand our position at least at the end of it. But uh, I've really enjoyed this, Mark. It's a very important uh, thing uh, for for us to talk about and for the church to understand. I hope that at the end of it, uh, you know, if our people listen to this podcast every time they go and witness a baptism from this day forward, hopefully they'll have a greater appreciation of what's being mm. done there. You know, here mm. here some beautiful things are being symbolized through this sacrament. Uh, mm-hmm. Some beautiful things are being symbolized for the sake of the one being baptized, for the sake of everyone who is observing. Uh, that baptism, there is a reminder of all of the richness that we have come to have through faith in mm. Christ Jesus, our Lord. And also the person being baptized is doing something very important. They're making that mm. outward public profession of faith saying, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I have faith in him. I trust in myself, not one bit, but only mm. in in his uh, death, burial, and resurrection, his obedient Amen. life and death. You know, I mean, it's it just, it's so rich yeah. and it's so beautiful. And, yeah, I, it's just wonderful that he, we are, we are people who experience things by our senses and here he confirms mm-hmm. and proclaims the gospel to uh, to our senses, mm-hmm. really. It's the, it's the, the, there's the audible word preached, which gives profundity and meaning to the visible word that is, uh, that is there proclaiming and confirming to us the promises that he gives. That's that's just wonderful. Yeah, it is wonderful. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. Every mm-hmm. Lord's Day we partake of the Lord's Supper, and I, I oh, often wonderful. remind people, hey, you've just heard the word preached to you in audible form, but man, here these very same things that you've heard preached are being symbolized now in, mm. in, the, in the supper that is set before you. Uh, it's great, great stuff. So, Mark, again, thank you so much. I do pray blessings upon uh, the work there in Valley City. Um, thank you. You know, first service is coming up in September, first worship yes. services. Um, very exciting. And I pray that uh, you would have the blessing of being able to baptize many in uh, the years to come, brother. Um, so, so thank you very much. Amen. And um, I do want to thank all who have uh, taken the time to listen in. I hope you've been encouraged in some way. Uh, hopefully you've been provoked to think a bit more deeply about uh, some of these things. And I do hope that you uh, listen in as uh, we continue to talk about other subjects in the future. Uh, until next time, uh, we do pray that you would walk in Christ and bring glory to God through him. Take care. Mm-hmm.